the general theory of spirituality is you can understand spiritual experience as anything that aids in this deconstruction of all the predictive priors that leads to this really novel experience of awareness unconstrained by those constructions. And then as it builds back up, you can play a part in reconfiguring those priors. That's the basic point. And like, I, you know, I think there's a lot more to say about it. And I don't think that goes the whole way, but that's like one model to understand what spiritual experience is. Welcome to The Trip Report, a podcast from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. I'm Zach Hagney. Like many, I believe we're in the midst of a watershed moment with the reemergence of psychedelics into the mainstream culture, but the future is far from certain. My goal with The Trip Report is to help listeners develop a deep understanding of the dynamics, complexities, and broader implications of this new paradigm. In these conversations, I dive deep into the business, science, policy, and culture of psychedelics with a wide range of guests including scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, clinicians, and others. Check out thetripreport.com to sign up for our newsletter. And if you want to learn more about Beckley Waves, visit beckleywaves.com. Welcome back to the Trip Report podcast, a production of Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. Today, we're speaking with Oshan Jaro. Oshan is a writer, podcaster, and fellow at Vox Media's Future Perfect a division focused on covering the crucially important topics that remain underreported. In this role, Oshan writes about the intersection of economics and the contemplative sciences. This includes things like psychedelics, meditation, and as we get into in some depth, the emerging science of the mind. I've been following Oshan's work for a few years, but a recent essay in Vox titled The Psychedelic Renaissance is at Risk of Missing the Bigger Picture prompted me to invite him on the Trip Report podcast. At the time of its publication, I know that it is one of the best summaries of the dynamics at play in the psychedelic space that I have ever seen. But as Oshan's essay titled, A General Theory of Spirituality, that got me excited to speak with him. As we discussed, there is a bit of a scientific revolution afoot at the intersection of neuroscience and the spiritual and contemplative traditions of the past. This is the first in what I believe will be a series of episodes with writers, scientists, meditators that will explore this rich field at the intersection of spiritual insight, psychedelic states, and the emerging model of the brain and the mind, the predictive processing framework. Also in this episode, we discuss the connection between a society's economic incentives and the effect on the individual's subjective experience and well-being the potential of psychedelics for spiritual practice and the betterment of the well, the concept of entropy and functional integration of neural pathways and the effect of psychedelics on these parameters, and finally, the free energy principle, predictive processing, and a general theory of spirituality. And without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Oshan Jero. I'm curious, this is the first time that you and I have connected, you know, outside of a text file across the internet. So who are you? What do you do? What's your story? <laughs> How do you describe your, your work? Yeah, um, I'm thankful to have the opportunity. And, and yeah, there's been a couple of crossover points between us where it was always made increasingly clear, hey, there's a lot of resonance here. I think you sent me some stray Google Doc at one point of, I don't know if it was free energy stuff or something, but it was, it was just really bang on. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, who am I? I don't know. I'm still working that out. But on like the 
top level right now, I'm a writer at Vox. I'm a fellow on the Future Perfect team, which is a little gang within Vox that is meant to be insulated from certain media pressures like the news cycle and just to focus on aspects of what they consider big and important problems from mental health to global poverty that we feel don't get enough attention. My two main areas of focus there, and but really across everything I do, are political economy on one hand, so things like anti-poverty policy, structural questions about the economy. I have a particular interest in the sociological and cultural analysis of economics. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, kind of a bucket that I have no good label for. I call it consciousness studies. Yeah. You know, there are a few academic departments that use that label. So things like psychedelics, meditation, cognitive science, all that fun stuff. Outside of Vox, I do a few things. I co-founded an online economic policy research platform that's called the Library of Economic Possibility. There, the focus is a fresh interface and organizational structure to empirical research on policies that have a lot of research and promise, but maybe haven't had as much attention the last few decades as that research merits. I was once upon a time an undergraduate in economics, and I was flailing as someone already interested in heterodox ideas, but within a thoroughly orthodox department. I didn't have a resource for that, so that speaks to that. And then lastly, you know, I host my own podcast. It's Amusing Mind Podcast. And that's where I, similar maybe to this, but I speak to folks exploring that cross-pollination between social science and contemplative science. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I think that the world that our economies help create are deeply related to the general patterns of experience that emerge through that. So that's a fun project. And yeah, I'll leave it there. I'm based in Brooklyn. Cool. There was actually something on your website that I wanted to ask you about. And let me see if I can go back and find it. So under your interests, you list under the economics tab, designing incentives to drive more expansive phenomenologies. And yeah. I'm wondering if you could help me understand what that means. Yeah, I'm trying to understand that myself. <laughs> I've, I've done a lot of groping in the dark to see what are the sensible connective tissues between social and contemplative science. There, there isn't a lot out there. Mm -hmm. If you go back to the Frankfurt School in the 20th century, these were a group of Marxist social philosophers who, who had a lot of bickering to do about, you know, how capitalism was producing, quote unquote, one dimensional man or how the culture industry was homogenizing folks's, you know, mental life and all these kinds of things. Ultimately, I don't think they ever succeeded from coming in out of the fringe. They had a lot of really heady analyses who were really deeply theoretical and they led right into the neoliberal era of capitalism that was the antithesis of what they wanted. So that didn't have a lot of impact. The question of what is the connection between economic incentives and, and phenomenology, one of the through lines that I've been looking at is this general environment of precarity. So the phenomenon of precarity, you can track this through different you know, economic waves and cycles. And a lot of folks will make the argument that with the rise of the gig economy, where folks are working as independent contractors as opposed to employees, meaning they you know, lack a lot of the benefits and security that a lot of other folks have with the stagnation of wages over a period of decades while most things like healthcare, education, housing have all grown more expensive, although other things like gadgets and TVs and whatnot have, mm -hmm. have grown cheaper. You can make an argument that the experience of precarity actually has cognitive impacts. And in a very mm -hmm. basic way, we know this. Like We know that stress, especially chronic stress, impacts cognitive capacity. There's a lot of very straight-edge behavioral psychologists who've been studying this. There was a book called Scarcity, came out a few years ago, that was really good on this question. So there's a lot of straight edge kind of looking at the connection between things like experiencing stress and how that impacts you cognitively. Then there's a lot of like, you know, Judith Butler talks about this a little bit. Lauren Berlant, who passed away recently in this, this affect theory mode, it's like the modern version of critical theory. 
tracing what that is like when it happens at scale to a large demographic. You can go to like one of my favorite philosophers of consciousness, a guy named Thomas Metzinger. He has this, this idea where he tries to classify different types of conscious experience. And, mm-hmm. and one of the categories, he, he says they fall along this axis of, of functional rigidity and something that is more functionally rigid holds a more stubborn place in your mind and your mind mm-hmm. develops around it. And so you draw a connection between precarity as a functionally rigid class of experience and how that affects cognitive development. But this is all really groping to see what connects, what is interesting, what might actually have any power to go beyond just an interesting hobby of, of connecting these things. And I'm, I'm not sure of the best way yet, but that's how I'm thinking about that. So if I could read back to you sort of how I'm at a very basic level, the experience of, I'm almost going to call it survival or the need for survival, whether that is in an economic sense, job security, housing healthcare, like you use the term precarity, which admittedly, I just had to quickly look up and make sure I was on the right track with that, but sort of the unease, uncertainty. Yeah. And as that increases in sort of the social milieu, the the economy, people's lives are becoming more, you know, the company man, so to speak, is, is, a, is a bygone era. And with that, there's a certain, you use the word stress, there's a certain amount of threat wariness, you might say, that becomes more and more part and parcel with life. And that feature is, is that the thing that you're pointing at with that? Is that? Yeah, I think you could even, I think, yeah, I think that's the right track. And there's almost a calcification, you can argue in terms of phenomenology. And this actually ties into psychedelics a bit when we get into Mm -hmm. the rebus model and all that. But yeah, I think the argument is that the more of one's mind space, these kinds of basic matters of economic insecurity occupy, you can make an argument that it prevents a certain degree of fluidity, adaptability, and, mm-hmm. and this ties directly into psychopathology. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so and, and you know, the argument of where the line is between maybe once you meet your absolute needs, and you cross over into meeting relative needs, the, the imperative shifts, and there's a lot of bickering over what are, you know, absolute relative, and mm-hmm. is it keeping up with basic social standard? Or is it just you're fed, you're good from a 2000 year, 2 million year timescale? But yeah, I think this idea of the rise of precarity, folks like Guy Standing, an anthropologist, has documented what he calls the rise of, of the precariat, like a particular demographic of folks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I think there's an interesting bridge to be made that the more of one's life and mind that occupies, perhaps the more rigid the terrain of phenomenology and conscious experience mm-hmm. grows. Mm-hmm. But it's a precarious connection still. Yeah. <laughs> so you you had mentioned calcification and rebus model. And so I, I suppose this is the the natural segue into, well, maybe we can look at your your recent essay. So I thought you had a great piece in Vox. The psychedelic renaissance is at risk of missing the bigger picture. Subtitle, what we lose when psychedelics are medicalized. And I thought, as I said in a tweet somewhere, like every so often we have these sweeping pieces from a New York Times or a Vox, and, and they inevitably miss the mark in some way about depicting to their readership this burgeoning field that more and more people seem to be recognizing it as a thing, right? I, I, namely the psychedelic, you know, quote unquote, renaissance or however we want to articulate it. But I thought you did a really good job of a survey of all of the different parts of the elephant, so to speak. You know, the blind man and the elephant is like the metaphor that I keep coming back to about. I almost different. opened the piece with that. There was a draft where I used that in the beginning. Oh, no way, really? Okay, good. I'm glad you did it because I, I used that recently and I, I, I'm <laughs> glad that we've partition that off. So I, I appreciate your, your editors. 
but that to me is the core a core metaphor for this space right on the one hand it's it's a a paradigm shift in the treatment of mental health right although science and the and the research that's pointing in that direction is still very early on the other hand, it's a resurgence of, of a practice or a, a, a discipline, you might even say, that has been around for millennia. There is issues of drug policy. There's issues of neuroscience and using these as tools of exploring the mind and our physiology. There is the matter of fitting these into the healthcare system, because as we know, MDMA is on the cusp of FDA approval, and there's a lot going on there. And I think you know the thrust of your piece was about how the tip of the cultural spear, so to speak, is this medicalization and this potential as therapeutics. But your argument is that that misses the larger picture. And so I wonder if you can give us a, a quick and dirty sense of what that piece entails and how it came about. Yeah, I'll give you kind of the context that I came to it with, because that really shaped, I think, how I wound up writing it. Psychedelics have been you know, part of my life for a long time. I was fortunate enough to grow up in an environment where they were pretty normalized. From my late teens onwards, I was meshed into communities where psychedelics were used in a really organized, like ceremonial way. So my introduction wasn't like dropping acid and, and going to a rave or something. It was, you know, 12 hour marathons of ayahuasca with incredible musicians, lots of preparation. And where the whole ordeal was referred to as the work. You know, so when we're dieting for a few days beforehand, we were preparing to work. And when we're in the ceremony, we're doing the work. So there was always this context of taking it really seriously, almost mm -hmm. as an opportunity even to really work on something important to you and your development, whatever that means. And as I grew older, you know, I got a little more interested in the psychonaut direction, just really fascinated by what were, to me, these uncharted lands and, and different ways that consciousness can feel. Um, my interest wasn't like going to get various kinds of high all the time. It was really learning about how malleable consciousness is, you know, how arbitrary, what I had come to experience as my fixed and rigid sense of self was. And with my background in economics, I grew fixated on this question of, of how our ordinary minds came to take the shape that they do, how different institutional settings could change the probability landscape of how that might actually come to be. So anyway, that's a, a long way of giving the context with which I watched as mainstream media outlets had all begun writing about the Renaissance and, and time and time again on every single major platform became table stakes to have that overview piece, as mm -hmm. you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And every single one I saw, they did the exact same thing. Uh, they would invariably say that there's this big shift going on where they might transform psychiatry forever or you know, the therapeutic potential. That was always not only the hook, but, but the sole focus of every piece. There were usually a couple of sentences tucked mm -hmm. away somewhere that would look at maybe the spiritual use of psychedelics in other cultures, indigenous cultures, or even American history. But the forward-looking interest was always presented as the therapeutic medical dimension. Yeah. And not to marginalize that, the therapeutic yeah. potential here is incredible and really badly needed. But I always had the sense that despite all the immediate suffering that psychedelics might be uniquely positioned to help deal with, that the most interesting questions and potentials are really those that go beyond that medical vision. When we talk about mental health, I think we often default to talking actually about mental illness and its absence. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. even if you go to the WHO's definition of mental health, yeah. they, they explicitly say it's not just an absence of mental illness, yeah. there's this positive dimension to it. And part of what makes me so excited about psychedelics is that I think they are pretty uniquely positioned to thrust that aspect into view, right? The question of our ordinary baselines of well-being that we've come to accept as normal. These are things that themselves can be reconfigured. So I, I had my angle, I knew my angle, but 
It's a really tricky thing to write about because it's very easy to slide into the hippie woo dimension that turns a lot of people off, <laughs> understandably so. Myself too. I think the reason I went to study economics in college is because I was rebelling against the new age vibe I'd experienced as a kid. I want to see how the world really works. I learned economics has just as many fictions there, <laughs> you know. But yeah, so the catalyst for the piece was really in December when Roland Griffiths announced the Griffiths Fund. Yeah. Because Griffiths, you know, as, as you know, one of the most respected scientists in, in the psychedelic lands, he led the center at Hopkins. And in his announcement, he explicitly said that although the therapeutic angle is important and he was sure it'll continue getting funding, NIH is now funding these kinds of studies, he considered the further study of psychedelics on healthy volunteers to learn more about his language was secular spirituality and well-being to be the most important question moving forward. Mm -hmm. And so that was when I knew that I had the institutional footing to, to make yeah. the case in a way that would be grounded in an acceptable context. Mm -hmm. So I pitched the idea really based around his announcement and wrote the piece as an overview of the psychedelic renaissance. But as you say, with the explicit aim of suggesting that medicalizing psychedelics should not be seen as the endpoint, right? And that the medical yeah. model for all its virtues has its own set of impositions, constrictions, shortcomings that we should really consider expanding as we, mm -hmm. as we move forward. Yeah. And I, I recall you spoke to a handful of people for that piece who were David Yadin at Hopkins, among others. Who, who did you connect with to yeah. do your research? I spoke with, with David. He was the first recipient of the Griffiths Fund. He's, he's at Hopkins doing great research. I spoke with a social scientist named Claudia Schwarzplag, and mm -hmm. she is a really wonderful, she's a European social scientist. She was affiliated with, I think it was the University of Vienna. But she did this really fascinating project where she spent three years, it was an ethnography, so embedded in the US, just hanging out with different psychedelic researchers, activists, folks all within the psychedelic renaissance. And her project wow. was to chart what she called the political imaginary. Hmm. But her question was, how are people thinking about the role of psychedelics as they merge into the mainstream? What do they do? What are they for? And I think she wound up charting four different buckets of, of, you know, how people are thinking about them. I don't remember all four, but, you know, something yeah. like the medical imaginary, the decrim, the religious, you know, but she had these right. four dimensions, which was a really useful study in just giving a sense of the spectrum of different worldviews that people bring hmm. to psychedelics. I also spoke with Ariel Clark. She's a lawyer. She helped start up the Psychedelic Bar Association. You know, she mm -hmm. worked a lot in like early cannabis legislation, and now she's working a lot on psychedelic legislation. She's also an indigenous woman. So bringing mm -hmm. that you know, perspective onto the actual codifying of the laws that will give shape to the industry that emerges is really fascinating. She gave me this great sense of the, the tension between on one hand, you know, a lot of folks see the medical model as the prudent way forward. You know, let's take mm -hmm. it slow. Let's let the research accumulate. The yeah. medical container will make sure it doesn't spill out of control. Right. And her point was like, sure. But if you look at the history of indigenous folks, black people and how they interface yeah. with the medical institution, you know, who's yeah. driving the argument that that's the yeah. safest way. So there's this tension of wanting to really expand more equitable access, but at the same time, she acknowledges, because cannabis was a really cautionary tale, of how important it is to get the regulation right. So yeah, there was the political dimension, there was the social dimension, and then the actual science dimension from, from David. That's fascinating. I just remember reading it and thinking like, yeah, this is, this is covering all of the pieces in a very well-structured way. And if I recall, and, and this is inherently the the challenge that I face in writing this, it's like, I, I don't recall you being prescriptive, right? Like there, there is a sense in which you read a lot of stuff or a lot of the conversations in this field are to your point, like there are different, I'm trying to find another word other than communities that like mm -hmm. have a, a vision of 
how this from a regulatory access container safety perspective emerges. And there's a a sense, and maybe this just be, you know, too much time online, but there's a tension and there and amongst individuals and people, but also just from a practical standpoint, a lot of these things are in tension. And I think the elephant in the room is the Controlled Substances Act. But yeah. as I recall, it was laying out the cards on on the table rather than wagging a finger and pointing in a certain way, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. That was a fun tension to navigate because also, you know, just to give a, a behind the scenes look too, that was the first long form piece I started with Vox. You know, when I joined mm. Vox, it, that was my intro to the journalism world. Yeah, I, I joined mm. as a fellow, which is explicitly mm-hmm. designed for folks who don't have a background to help onboard and teach us and all this stuff. So a, a lot of the piece was actually me wrestling with what are the responsibilities of someone, you know, in yeah. the media writing about this thing. Vox has a lot of reach, a lot of distribution. Yeah. What you say, it matters one way or another. I, I was at the we both were at the conference in Denver recently, and there was a whole panel on, you know, what are the ethics of journalism around psychedelics right. in these early stages? It really matters. So, yeah, I was thinking a lot about, on one hand, I didn't want to sound like, you know, a cranky. It wasn't a critique of medicalizing yeah. psychedelics, right? Yeah. It was a critique of if and when that's the only game in town. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I thought a lot about, you know, laying the cards out in a way, which was simple because my gambit from the beginning was that the cards have not fully been laid out anywhere yet. Like yeah. there's just been a bunch of cards that haven't shown up yet. So I can just show that and that in itself, I think, mm-hmm. gives something to the piece. There were a couple of things though I, I tried to do, like I wouldn't call them prescriptive, but like some of the things that were important to me were A, giving an actionable suggestion of what going beyond the medical model could look like so at the Mm -hmm. end i talk about you know doblin's sketch this idea of licensed legalization which is basically like treating psychedelics the way we treat cars we can get into that later if you want but i I wanted to give a concrete hey here is an idea you know i'm not saying this is what we should do i'm saying let's throw this in the discourse bounce it around you know because there are plenty of, of issues with that as well and then the other thing i wanted to do was offer some spotlight to the idea of entropy because a lot of the interest in the mechanisms underlying psychedelics has gone around neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense because it's very easy to draw a bridge from elevated neuroplasticity to therapeutic outcomes, especially when you have guided therapy as the bridge. Entropy is more of a wild card. But to me too, you know, with my idea of the relevance of psychedelics goes beyond those with diagnoses or clinical conditions, I, I think that this whole terrain of entropy or global functional integration, all this stuff, offers a way of understanding why psychedelics would be useful to anyone wherever they fall on a spectrum of mental illness. Whereas plasticity, you know, you can still make the same case. I mean, plasticity declines with age, all this stuff. But yeah, I wanted to say, hey, there's there's these other mechanisms at play too, and and they might speak to a larger story. So let's get, this is a perfect segue once again into the next pillar that I wanted to jump into with you. So you just use the phrase entropy. Can you flesh that out a little bit more? What, what do you mean by that? It's obviously a thermodynamics term from physics, but we're talking about in, in the sense of, which I guess is, is a physical sense, but within the brain and, and mechanistic perspective of how psychedelics work. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll give folks the caveat that this is like, I am in every sense of the word, a layman here trying to understand <laughs> entropy myself, which, you know, sometimes is helpful. I think that's why Pollen's book was so good on psychedelics. That's how yeah. it came to it. So yeah, entropy, you know, from second law of thermodynamics, the universe is tending towards disorder, which now is actually being being contested. But in the context of the brain, this was really, you know, coming out of the work of Robin Carhart Harris. He had a paper in 2014 called The Entropic Brain. And so in in 
the cognitive context, what it means is if you look at the chorus of neural activity, right? Electrical, when neurons fire, they give off little electrical potentials. Those fire at certain frequencies that happens across the brain. When they fire at the same frequency, they sync up. So when you talk about, you know, alpha waves being present in the brain, what that means is that a bunch of neurons are firing to give off the same frequency. And so mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. idea is that they're, they're doing the same thing. They're working together. So Carhart Harris's idea was that you can, we can actually come up with proxies to measure entropy, which in this case would refer to the unpredictability of that electrical activity, right? The diversity, the randomness. You can also see, you know, there are interesting measures. This isn't entropy proper, but a lot of times brain modules and networks speak within to each other. And on psychedelics, mm -hmm. we see that there's less of that and more connecting with other networks. So that's yep. why it's called global, you know, functional integration. But yeah, the idea of entropy is looking at the, the full brain activity and seeing just what is going on. And, and one of the more interesting aspects of that to me, and he makes a case in 2014 and he released it, he reviewed it again in 2018. And he said, basically, the evidence looks good. My hypothesis might be on track. And in 2018, was that the Rebus model? I don't know when he released Rebus, but he actually released a paper that was the entropic brain revisited or something oh, okay. to that effect. Oh, wow. Okay. Which I do think basically turned into the Rebus model. You Got know, it. That kind of swallowed yeah. the entropic brain. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so his claim there is that there is one of the net networks of brain regions called the default mode network, which, you know, swims around a lot in these, in these circles. Yeah. You know, folks related to self-related thinking when you daydream mm -hmm, this and that. Mm -hmm. His argument is that evolution has sculpted the default mode network to, among other things, modulate the level of entropy across the brain. So it's one of the high level systems in the hierarchy of brain systems. And really across the whole brain, it evolved to maintain entropy levels below a particular critical threshold. And it's easy enough to imagine why, actually, maybe to back up one step again, his, his hypothesis is that the higher the level of entropy in the brain the richer the conscious yeah. experience and also the more unpredictable. So rich mm. and unpredictable maps pretty well onto, onto psychedelic experience. Yep. yep. And that would mean that the opposite of that would therefore be less entropy and therefore more predictable, i.e. like a coma or anesthesia. Is that? Yeah, they've measured the this. Idea? So when you're, when you're unconscious, you have lower levels of entropy and then ordinary sobriety, it's like middling. And then, you know, psychedelics entropy goes high, but yeah, they've lower levels of, and like levels of consciousness is its own space of, of discourse, but it exists and we have proxies to measure it. Um, so yeah, mm. when you're sleeping, entropy is low and, you know, gradually ratchets up. Got it. But yeah, his argument is that the default mode network evolved to modulate these levels because if you are on the plains in the savannah, having an incredibly rich experience, marveling at the leaves, you're going to get eaten because you're not paying attention. So there was like an evolutionary pressure. Interesting. And so presumably, I'm just trying to follow this insight that I just had, like the shape of one's nose or chin or height, there could be a variability in the phenotype of one's capacity to manage or modulate entropy. And that might be, maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but that might be one of the the things that makes one more prone to spiritual experiences or contemplative awakenings or, or what have you. That's interesting. It makes a lot of sense. And, and of course, like this idea of there are natural variations in, across different people's baselines of maybe, you know, whatever particular thresholds, you know, that their DMN is, is tuned to hold on entropy. Right. And maybe folks who lean naturally higher are more prone to having these kinds of experiences. That right. And Perfect and also, problem. I mean, I, I was just before we jumped on, I was listening to and reading your interview with Chris Letheby mm. about unselfing and I'm deep in a 
Nisargata, Nisargadatta, I can't never pronounce his name, <laughs> Maharaj, but I am that. I'm reading that right now and I'm just completely taken with it, which feels relevant to this. I'll table that for, for later. But so anyway, getting back to entropy and the capacity of the default mode or the, the role of the default mode network as being a regulator or a modulator of, of entropy. Yeah. So yeah, the, his whole point is that there's a, a sensible story whereby evolution wanted to tune it at particular levels mm -hmm. and that serves survival. And the piece, like the, the point I make in the piece is that now where, you know, I'm not necessarily walking down the street and worried about getting eaten by prey or predator or something like that. So there might actually be further value if we're interested, not just in, in survival, but quality of life of well-being. Yeah. And okay, what do these high entropy states have to offer, have to teach? What role might they play in these questions of baseline well-being? And, and you know, there's a lot we don't know. There was actually just a paper that came out a few days ago that challenged basically every metric we have to measure entropy. There was a bit of discourse there. Like it's still an unsettled idea. We're still trying to figure out. I think they they measured 12 different proxies and like six of them showed nothing and some of them did. So it's still kind of a fuzzy idea that we're that we're refining. But to me, it has this broader implication that, mm -hmm. that there seems to be a lot to learn. So we, we just discussed entropy and the idea that part of the mechanistic way of viewing this is as entropy increases under the influence of psychedelics. And that entropy increase might be a, what would you call it? A wiping the slate clean, mm -hmm. an opportunity for resetting. I also want to bring in, you know, the concept of like neural annealing, because I think that that's relevant and that may be jumping to later work from Carhart Harris and, yeah. and I think his name is Mike. Johnstone or Johnson? Mike Johnson, I think. Yeah. Mike Johnson sure. and and Andres from QRI. But the the model that I have, and, and I and I think this is maybe a tangent, maybe where where we can head next is to this point of entropy, like increasing the temperature and increasing the malleability. And this is where I'm a little confused about you describe entropy as being the, you know, a a, a function or a way of describing the electrical activity. And then we have neuroplasticity, which is like, maybe not neuroplasticity, but structural connectivity, the, mm -hmm. the, the, just the neural pathways, the, the physical connections that neurons make within the, the system of the brain. And, and do you have any sense of how those are related? Like the concept of entropy and the, cause I always, you know, viewed, or I guess my, I guess my implicit assumption was the concept of entropy was at both the structural and the functional level, right? Where sort of like there's this malleability that's been introduced into the system in, in such a way that like clay then becomes more malleable or modifiable. Again, yeah. I'm not sure how I'm leading us into the weeds <laughs> here in any, but I'm curious, do you have any yeah, sense no, of the that? Weeds are, the weeds are a good place to go, I think. I do. And it's, it's constantly changing a while ago. I mean, not too long ago, a couple, maybe a year ago, my model of this was incorrect, I think. And I'm learning this more and more, which was that these are very separate things that there's entropy and the electrical activity. There's yeah. neuroplasticity where your brain is rewiring. And those are totally separable dimensions. The more I speak to folks, the more I realize these are actually pretty entangled and we don't really know the degree to which they are. Mm -hmm. They are different. And there's a lot of really interesting experiments underway to figure out what happens when you separate them. Mm -hmm. So one of the big you know, things in psychedelics nowadays and drug development is folks are trying to develop versions of, say, LSD 
that maintain the therapeutic properties but carve out the subjective experience overall. Yeah. And another way to interpret that is they're trying to retain the neuroplastic effect but carve out the entropy effect. The entropy. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. Because the subjective experience is what it's like to experience a high level of entropy. So, you know, their gambit is that even if you carve out entropy, there's still an elevation in neuroplasticity and that's going to have some therapeutic benefit. It can also reach a wider patient population, you know, folks who don't want to trip or have contraindications, all this kind of stuff. So people are trying to figure out, you know, what happens when you separate them. And so far, most of the research is all preclinical in rodents. There is one compound uh, from Delix Therapeutics that's now actually in phase one human trials. Yeah. Things seem to be going all right so far, but we don't have that yet. So yeah, you, you in, in principle and apparently in practice, you can separate them. My argument is that once you do, you no longer have a psychedelic. Like that's, that's not a psychedelic drug when there's no longer a subjective experience attached. And that's fine. It's a different yeah. drug. You can call yeah. it a neuroplastogen and yeah. great. But yeah, I think these two are entangled in ways that I think as those drugs go through human trials, we might learn yeah. a little more about. And certainly, you know, scientists could probably speak to the actual interplay and, and whatnot. But yeah, I think they're, they're tangled up. Interesting. I'm also wondering how there might be a spiritual dimension to a non-psychedelic neuroplastogen, right? Like I, I think in terms of like skill acquisition, right? And like learning and in a sense... If my model is on the right track, if, if there's going to be a change in, let's say, mental illness, something that resembles similar to the process of learning, right? And, and I, I, I tweeted out, like, what's the difference between operant conditioning and, and skill acquisition the other day? And mm. it's still a fuzzy area to me, but I'm curious if there might be a, a play for, because this is just going back to my own experience. I did it 10 years or so ago. I, I sat goenka you know vipassana retreat and i just felt like it didn't take like i you know <laughs> that can be rough and it was rough like it was rough and and i i could spend some time wondering or thinking about why it didn't take but basically i thought perhaps there was there's too much rigidity in my system in a way that didn't allow for the message or the experience to interface with my system in a, in a way that could allow for learning or development or the quiet, you know, you might put that into like quieting the mind or something like that. Mm. But anyway, one of the other things that we had, I think, have a shared interest about and, and is also part and parcel with Robin Carhart Harris's models and, and probably others. I'm, I'm admittedly, unfortunately, not as well versed in some of the other quote unquote models of of psychedelic mechanistic work that's out there. But the idea of the free energy principle, predictive Mm -hmm. processing, and and this is my read again, as like a a 100% layman, right? (laughs) But is that there is this model of, let's call it how the brain, I don't want to say works, and it's not creates experience, but maybe that's approaching it. But that that was introduced by a physicist, neuroscientist, like a real savant by the name of Carl yeah. Friston, who happens to be at Imperial College London, called the free energy principle, also goes by predictive processing or active inference. And this is at a very high level, it takes what appears to be a very obvious experience of living, which is I see my backyard out there and the photons of light and the image are coming into my retina and I'm producing an experience based on the signals coming in. It's like a, a camera recording 
a visual experience or sound is like the ears and the processes in the brain are like a microphone. They're mm -hmm. taking in the sound wave information and creating the experience of sound. And this model of brain function turns that on its head. It's suggesting that what we actually experience is our projection into the world. We are painting the experience of sensory phenomena and then quickly or subconsciously or neurologically updating those predictions in real time based on incoming sensory information. So I'm wondering, can you do it any more justice than, than <laughs> I can? <laughs> I, I, see, I have the danger of I'm a writer first and foremost, and so I can take a lot of time to try to articulate this on the page. And before I hit send and and here, yep. it's 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 the challenge <laughs> of trying to fumble yeah. through something that's very complicated. No, I have the same. I'm also uh, a writer first. Actually, it was ridiculous that I started a podcast because conversationally <laughs> dealing with these things was never in my in my wheelhouse. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think you and I have, we've actually talked about this in various formats a, a little bit, and it's super interesting and. I'll try, I'll try, you know, I'll give my, my approach to it, whether it does it any more justice, I have no idea. But the, the way I like to explain these two is you have free energy principle and you have predictive processing and they fit together pretty nicely where free energy principles be higher atop the higher, that's like the high level view and predictive processing could be seen as slotted within that. But the, I, I think the, the most intuitive way I like to point to what it's saying is to, you know, ask folks to imagine when they're dreaming, right? So when you're asleep, you're laying in your bed, your eyes are closed. You're getting no sensory input. And yet, you know, you're having this big, rich, convincing dream that you're out there, you're living in a, in a world that is being generated entirely through your cognitive system. Yeah. And what predictive processing slash, you know, the FEP claims is that when you are awake in your ordinary sober mind, you're having the same experience. That is, the, mm -hmm. the, the, your subjective experience is being generated from your cognitive system in the same way it is as when you're dreaming. You're not just like looking out at a transparent window on the world. Your brain is doing this. It's a top-down projection or prediction of its world. The, the difference between waking and dreaming is that when you're awake, you are getting sensory input from the outside and your system is constantly cross-checking against that to try to keep yep. the, the top-down predicted model aligned, not necessarily with what is out there. It's not tuned for truth, but it's tuned for usefulness. So it's trying to project yep. it in a way that serves its purposes. So th the free energy principle at the highest level, what it does, yeah, it's Friston. There's two stories about it. One is actually that, you know, folks still really don't understand it. I certainly don't. But Friston is the most cited neuroscientist in the world. Mm -hmm. So he gets the benefit of the doubt here. People are like, all right, there's probably something here. But there's also a simple enough, you know, way to paint it, which is that, you know, if you look at any living system, what does it mean to exist, right? He starts mm -hmm. at this dimension. Mm -hmm. And for Friston, what it means to exist fundamentally is to maintain a boundary between oneself and the environment. And mm -hmm. so in statistics, this is all very mathematical and I can't speak to that, but in statistics, you know, this is called a Markov blanket, that boundary between oneself and the environment. And so his, his thing is that in order to continue existing, you have to continue maintaining that boundary. And then furthermore, in any system that has that boundary, the majority of states it could inhabit next involve a situation where that boundary dissolves. So if you think about, for example, a tree, Right. All the like million, billion, trillion configurations of all the different atoms and relationships held within that tree could occupy any number of configurations. Mm -hmm. And the majority of those are ones where the boundary that defines the tree from its environment no longer exists. 
So what the tree has to do to continue existing is find a way to keep itself within the narrow band of states wherein that boundary is maintained. And that's a tricky process because you're fighting against entropy here. You're fighting against the odds. The odds push you towards disorder. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, for example, humans do, what brains do is they've developed a clever tactic in order to beat the odds and maintain that boundary, which gets wrapped up in this idea of predictive processing. So the brain, mm -hmm. you know, it's learned from its experience and it now predicts this top-down internally generated model of the world, which helps it plan, predict, take action and bias yep. itself to stay in that range of states where it keeps its Markov blanket. And, and another way to describe the overarching point here is that what the brain is trying to do is minimize free energy or uncertainty, yeah. which is defined as the gap between its expectations of the world yeah. and what it's actually experiencing. It wants to minimize that because that means it's doing a really good job at predicting, which means it can do a really good job at planning and acting so as to continue existing. So that's like the high level, how I mm -hmm. point to it. And this leads to a piece that you wrote, I think maybe back in May, when was that? And it was titled A General Theory of Spirituality. Mm. and I think that that is our last port of call for this conversation, if that makes sense for you. And I just want to read the opening paragraph of this piece, which I think is super interesting. A general theory of spirituality is afoot. The secular West has been trying to figure out how to talk about spirituality for decades, how to bring it into the domain of polite conversation and scientific language and academic research funding and the God is dead world. The general theory of spirituality is the most promising, though incomplete, step I've seen. So what do you mean by general theory of spirituality? Can you walk us through that? That really came to be after listening to a talk by a guy named Shamil Chandaria. He gave a talk at Oxford. He's gone on you know, Michael Taft's podcast and, and so mm -hmm. on. And, and this is really his idea. But it's really fascinating. So it takes this context of understanding our experience as entangled with this predictive processing version of the world. And maybe before I explain what it is, the last piece we have to put in about predictive processing is, is how it constructs experience itself, mm -hmm. which is on the basis of these successfully nested priors. Mm -hmm. So priors are essentially, you know, we talked about calcification, calcified assumptions about how the world works. So, mm. you know, I have seen enough times in my life that when I throw an object into the air, it's going to fall back down. Yeah. So yeah. presumably my mind, my predictive mind, it is so confident in the prediction that what goes up will come back down that that consideration every time I throw something up no longer is part of my conscious experience. That's just how the world works. That's an assumption. And I think of these priors as a house of cards model, right? Where mm -hmm. you have these kind of low level priors that are very basic about how the world works all the way up to like, you know, say you're in third grade and you share an opinion in front of your class and someone ridicules you. You might calcify the assumption that, oh, when I share my opinion in public, I'm going to look stupid. Therefore, I mm -hmm. won't do it. That might become a, a part of your world model, and that might lead to some psychopathology down the line. Mm -hmm. But the predicted mind builds up your experience of the world on the basis of these priors. Mm -hmm. So Shamil, you know, he's, he's a big meditator. He talks a lot about this. There was a, a paper by a scientist named Ruben Laukinen came out, I think maybe a year or two ago now, that, that really broke this down nicely. And his claim about meditation, which is similar but not identical to psychedelics, they're a little mm -hmm. different. But his claim is that what meditation does through the lens of predictive processing is it progressively deconstructs your priors. It down-regulates the confidence that your mind ascribes to all of its assumptions about the world. So you can think of these priors as things that have constrained the space of what you experience into this mm -hmm. like little mm -hmm. window. And as mm -hmm. you deconstruct them, that gets wider and wider and wider, mm -hmm. which is interesting. You start having novel experiences, so on and so forth. 
But his claim is that you can understand meditation as a progressive deconstruction of the predictive mind mm-hmm. all the way down to what you know the ground of awareness. So this right. emptiness bath of pure awareness, whereby there is no longer the construct of a self or a subject-object dichotomy that is structuring the experience, you know, of all these mystical things. Yep. And then after you've done that, that's not the end of the road. After you've done that, as you come out of meditation, especially deep states, you know, we're studying cessation now, folks who yep. literally go all the way down you can actually bear witness as the predictive mind builds itself back up. So you see the priors reassemble. And in that Mm -hmm. space, there's a lot of agency. You can actually nudge them and change those priors around a little bit or just, you know, being privy to seeing that process grants some insight to you that might be useful down the line. So Shamil's point here that the general theory of spirituality is you can understand spiritual experience as anything that aids in this deconstruction of all the predictive priors that leads to this really novel experience of awareness unconstrained by those constructions. And then as as it builds back up, you can play a part in reconfiguring those Mm -hmm. priors. That's the basic point. And like, I, you know, I think there's a lot more to say about it. And I don't think that goes the whole way. But that's like one model to understand what spiritual experience is, is deconstructing the predictive mind and then having it come back with more agency. I've listened to a handful of his podcasts and and talks as well. And I was just so enthused when he entered my life because I was like, wow, this is actually. Yeah. uh, you know, I have a prior where I was born in New Jersey in the 80s, and I've got a bullshit detector that I feel is, you know, very <laughs> well tuned. But in the matters of spiritual practice and esoterica, I very much am biased towards, oh, this is bullshit. Yeah. And what his model allowed for me was a pairing up of the language and the concepts of whether it's Buddhism or Advaita or any mystical spiritual traditions, maybe not any, but ones that I gravitate towards with a, a modern scientific mathematically oriented view of the world. And so merging yeah. those together, I thought was just such a, a beautiful synthesis. I was a philosophy and theology major in undergrad and also did pre-med stuff. So this like dual tradition lineage, esoteric lens and a modern biomedical modern lens has always been a, it's been a steady feature Mm. of mine. And what came about with Shamil's work and people like Shinzen Young and others who like put the pieces together in a really elegant way. And it really afforded me what I have felt like is a progress along the path, so to speak, Mm. right? In my my own meditation or spiritual development. So I, I'm so enthused by this. And, and you mentioned Ruben Lokanen's work and it feels like a really exciting time in this pocket of science and spirituality and tradition and novel technologies or not. It just is, um, yeah. I, I mean, I had the same experience when I first listened to him and, and also when I was reading Ruben's work. And yeah, there's a couple different folks who are, we have these pieces that have been developed, I think, for years now. And I think the early attempts at taking a, you know, cog lens to spirituality, I didn't find very compelling, right? A lot of times they, they lean. Like, what does that mean? Maybe like 10, 15 years ago, rather than a true synthesis of of these two epistemologies of ways of, mm-hmm, of making mm-hmm. sense of the world, it was really just like, oh, science can explain spirituality away, mm-hmm, right? There was a real mm-hmm, aping mm-hmm. Of, of the latter and the former. 
Whereas what I, what I see, and I think what you're pointing to as well is like, there's an actual yeah. robust dialogue between yeah. them that respects the epistemology of the other, but also doesn't just politely, oh, you're coming from the spiritual end and let yeah. them say whatever. They, there, there's real cross dialogue. Yeah. There's challenging, totally. there's pushing. And that's happened. We don't know what shape that's going to take, but I agree. Yeah. It seems like there's a really productive discourse happening. One of the things that was always off-putting for me about this dialogue throughout the years, which I think you're pointing to, is that it came in the form of, this is going to come out perhaps offensive, but <laughs> spiritual people using quantum physics to justify <laughs> their, you know, their epistemology. (laughs) And that was just, that has always been very off-putting to me. And maybe that's just, this is like version 2.0 of it, but it feels like we're getting some purchase on this, you know, interfaith or inter-epistemological dialogues in a way that has some potential and is really interesting. And also serves the purpose of elucidating the other. You watch, you know, Shamil's presentation from Oxford and his slides. And it's like a path opens up. At least that was my experience. So well, he's, I mean, the, the environment in which I think he gave his first talk on like the Bayesian brain and meditating, I think it was at like the Oxford center for global well-being or something, but it's very tied in for him into these pragmatic questions of well-being, you know, in a way Mm -hmm. that I think, yeah, the quantum physics, you know, of old wasn't exactly engaged with. Yeah. It was a little, it was a little too spooky back then but this is this is exciting stuff so yeah it's exciting stuff and and the part that i'm most excited about which which i don't think we've touched on yet i I think it's only got to the point where we're encountering the same problem we've had for a couple decades now with this meme of of spiritual but not religious and the disintegration of religion and these social contexts wherein a lot of these practices from psychedelics meditation have always occurred we've extracted them brought them into our little milieu and and deal with them our ways there are a lot of issues here right because like you can deconstruct the mind sure but as anyone will tell you, the point of spirituality has never been to simply walk around in a purely enlightened state. That doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. You have to go do the laundry afterwards. Yeah, and yeah. so the question of how do you reconstruct the mind, what are the values that inform that process, has always been the domain of religion. Yeah. And we don't have that today. We don't have mm-hmm. a consensus narrative around now that we can do this really potent thing pretty reliably, psychedelics is one pathway, how do we wisely handle that? And, and in particular, how does that integrate with questions already existing lineages of well-being, right? Like yeah. you know, global aid and poverty and these questions, these I think interface very importantly and, and yeah. have some ethical relevance here that we're still working out. All right, what does this yeah. look like today? What stories are we going to tell about it? Are there any projects or people who are tackling this that you're excited about or look to in terms of offering? Because you use the term spiritual, but not religious. And I, I go to people like John Verveke, who was mm. like identifying what he calls the meaning crisis. And, and there's a, a whole explanatory motif that could be a apply to that but are there thinkers or projects or what resonates with you in 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 that domain of like the reconstruction phase of of this yeah yeah i I like verveki a lot too i think he's done a huge service in providing vocabulary to speak about this stuff it's still a little fringy but but a bit more of a a polite conversation acceptable way of pointing to something like the meaning crisis which you know prior was tough to do and inevitably, when you really talk about these things, about what's going on, why is depression on the rise? Why yeah. do so many people not really like their lives? Like you inevitably start talking about economic dimensions, about how many hours a week you work, about mm-hmm. how should you, you know, whatever it is. So th- I think there's a natural synthesis there. In terms of uh, attempts at who's doing interesting work here, I think my favorite, who I think is criminally underrepresented in this mm. conversation, 
is a German sociologist named Hartmut Rosa. He has a book, and it was somewhat recent, called, I think it was, it was called Resonance. I think the subtitle is like a, a sociology of our relationship to the world or something like that. When I read that book, I had just this incredible experience of I'd spent years, I thought, groping to try to articulate why these two realms, the contemplative and the social sciences, really need to speak. And he, he did it. You know, he, he not mm. only did he do it and articulate it through an academic lens, also a literary lens. He has a great chapter on, on poetry and how that reflects a lot of what Verbeke's talking about. But then at the end of the book, and this is where I always thought people fall short, I think there's a lot of folks who can diagnose the problem. Yeah. A lot of folks who will wring their hands at capitalism or something or other. And then just leave it at that. And, yeah. you know, there, there's value to raising awareness. But I, I was always interested in what do we do from a policy dimension, from a structural dimension? Mm -hmm. We can't tell everyone to go meditate and do a bunch of psychedelics. Yeah. A, that's a bad idea. And B, that's not going to scale. Institutions scale, right? So what, what Rosa did at the end of the book is, is his last chapter was on economic policies. And the two dimensions he touched on were uh, guaranteed income and economic democracy. So you're nationalizing particular key industries so that the profit motive isn't the primary structure behind them. And you know, he, he said he's not an economist, he didn't go deep, but the fact that he tied this really deep analysis of the crisis of resonance. So for him, like this notion of resonance, the issue is when your relationship to the world goes mute. And we can mm. actually think about this in entropy levels a little bit. But like depression can be understood as a really mute relationship to the world where if you imagine like a string tied from you to your environment, it's not resonating, right? Whereas the inverse of that, when you have high resonance is when it really is this like strong, vibrant relationship. So he ties that directly with structural questions of how can we reorganize the economy to scale the probability for more resonant mm -hmm. relationships to the world to emerge naturally rather than the contemplative project of you come out of the world battered as you are, then you go do a bunch of meditation and you reprogram yeah. your mind. Like rather than focusing on how to reprogram, he was looking at, well, how do we program it better in the first place? So I, I really like his work on this. That's national economic policy that he's talking about, right? And thinking about incentives and, and structures of policy at a very high level, which unfortunately, like I think the way that my experience at this level has been is just after a certain point in which you just articulated of shaking my fist at the powers that be <laughs> feeling very impotent and uncertain and weak with regards to just even like my own opinion or understanding of what does moving the needle towards more human flourishing sort of like I, I can't even begin to sort of wrap my head around that so I guess well, I don't think that's an accident, it, but... right? Because I think those conversations haven't really happened yet. Mm. I think there are a lot of folks. I mean, I feel that same way. I mean, I think that's because this discourse really hasn't yet connected to an mm -hmm. actionable, what can we do? And, you know, it's very easy to feel small in the face it, of it all. Yeah. And it feels very entrenched and stuck in a socialist versus capitalist binary. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and that feels very tough to get out of that. I think maybe the most unproductive frame within to have the discourse is the frame of isms, you know, talk yeah, about yeah. It, 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 talk about policy. That's why I, I like to go a level down and just oh, I like concrete. That. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I want to be mindful of your time. I also want to be mindful that I'm going to have two young children come <laughs> running into the house any minute now. So this is, uh, this is great, man. This was a lot of fun. I was I'm good so to glad to we got you. to connect. Yeah. 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 It's the thing that I would hope to repeat again, I don't know, on a yearly basis or every six months or something like that. Like I said, like I think the, you know, the interesting thing is that we're tracking similar things and it's always good to 
talk. I'm stuck up here in Maine and I write a newsletter and I have two young kids and I don't know anybody <laughs> who wants to just, you know, nerd out on predictive framework and, and predictive mind and such. So anyway, this, this has been great. What you have a, you have a podcast, you have a newsletter, you have a fellowship. Tell us quickly. I know you mentioned it at the, at the beginning, but where, where can folks find you and your work? Yeah, I have my home base online. It's oshanjaro.com or musingmind.org. I'm in the process of thinking about a rename, but I have a website there and that has you know my podcast, my newsletter, my writing, link to the Vox stuff. That's probably the, you know, that's a good landing pad and folks can fan out from there if they're interested. It's a great website. I really, I <laughs> love you. it. Yeah. The, the design question was, it was, you know, it was an excuse for me to figure out web design a little bit mm -hmm. as again, a layman and it's a work in progress, but it, it's fun. Oh, it, you did great. I, I, I just, I've just relied on Substack. So <laughs> kudos to you. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, Thanks, man. It's really great. Thanks for listening to the trip report. We hope you enjoyed it. You can sign up to receive our free newsletter and get the podcast sent directly to your inbox by going to the This podcast is a production from Beckley waves, a psychedelic venture studio. If you're interested in learning more about building companies in the psychedelic space, head over to BeckleyWaves.com to get in touch. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. I'm Zach Hegney. The Trip Report is produced by Cooler Production Company with coordination from Caitlin Jabari. See you next time.